0: Hello, John Dennis here on Thursday the 7th of January. Today, a plot against Gordon Brown as two ex-ministers call for a secret ballot on his continued leadership of the Labour Party. Jeff Hoon and I are not
1: calling for Gordon Brown to go, we're calling for Labour MPs to have their say in a secret ballot on the very clear understanding that everybody, whatever their view, gets behind that result.
0: Columnist Andrew Rawnsley tells us the timing of the challenge was
2: wrong. Were they? to remove Gordon Brown when he didn't want to go, to pull him out in early January as the snow is falling around us, we could get into the sort of crisis where there would have to be a February general election or a March, early March general election.
0: Also today, True Grit, or is it salt? We visit a gritting depot and meet the people keeping Britain moving during the cold snap.
3: We've got over 5,000 kilometres of network, which is is quite a lot. And what we aim to do is um, we aim to keep uh, our our key routes, as we call them, um, open, and they're the ones that we really concentrate on.
0: Getting underway in Las Vegas, one of the biggest events on the technology calendar, the Consumer Electronics Show. And art critic Jonathan Jones' view of a new portrait of Princes William and Harry. He quite likes it. It does have a kind of
4: cool contemporary poise to it, and yet when you you actually go close to it, 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 it's very
0: well painted. It's got some nice details, just in a a traditional way.
1: Guardian Daily with John Dennis on guardian.co.uk
0: First, our main story, the Labour leadership plot. Just as Gordon Brown was delivering an unusually strong performance against David Cameron at Prime Minister's questions, former ministers Geoff Hoon and Patricia Hewitt revealed the contents of a letter they'd sent to all Labour MPs calling for a secret ballot. Hoon told our chief political correspondent, Nicholas Watt, why they'd acted.
5: Actually, because I was the chief whip and in that position, any number of colleagues have been expressing their real concerns to me that the Labour Party is simply not getting its message across, we're not able to campaign successfully and effectively because every time we launch a campaign, every time we take an initiative, put forward a policy, continuing questions uh, about the leadership arise and Patricia Hewitt uh, had the same experience talking to colleagues over uh, the recess and we felt uh, that it was necessary
1: to try and resolve these matters once and for all. And is the problem just that there are Labour members talking about the leadership or is is there a problem with Gordon Brown? I think
5: it's about making sure that we can go into the general election campaign as a united party. We set out absolutely specifically in our letter to parliamentary colleagues the fact that if those who have been questioning the leadership were to lose such a secret ballot then we would expect them to unite behind the leader to campaign as a united party and to win that
1: general election so this is all about making sure these questions are resolved once and for all. Now you were seen as a supporter of Tony Blair before Gordon Brown became Prime Minister you became very supportive of him you're now no longer in his cabinet when did you become disaffected with him?
5: I'm not in any way saying that this is about my or Patricia's or anyone else's disaffection with Gordon Brown. It is about ensuring that the Labour Party has the opportunity of campaigning successfully in that general election. And that also explains the timing. Let me make it clear. The alternative is for these questions to rumble on through the general election campaign. Uh, That cannot be good for the Labour Party. It cannot be good for the Labour government. That's
1: why we need to resolve them now, once and for all. And do you have any support in the Cabinet, Because surely the lesson of British politics, you think of Margaret Thatcher in 1990, is if the Cabinet is behind a Prime Minister, they're okay. If the Cabinet fractures, they're not okay. I simply do not know.
5: This is a matter that Patricia and I decided upon uh, as a result of both separately having the same kinds of conversations, the same kinds of questions raised, the same kinds of concerns expressed. We happened to meet uh, and talk about it and decided that it was necessary to take this action. So you haven't been steered by members of the Cabinet? This isn't a coup? I have not been steered by colleagues in Cabinet. I don't think I've even spoken to a member of Cabinet recently.
0: Jeff Hoon talking to Nicholas Watt. Well, Nick Watt's in our Westminster office now. Nick, Jeff Hoon, they're denying he'd had contact with Cabinet ministers, but he and Patricia Hewitt will be disappointed
1: that, so far, none has offered support. Well, by tea time it was looking very much like this uh, was fizzling out. You had cabinet ministers coming out uh, and supporting the Prime Minister. Significantly, those who were supporting him most enthusiastically are his strong backers. Ed Miliband, the Climate Change Secretary, who made his name as an aide to the Prime Minister. Andy Burnham, the Health Secretary, used to be seen as a bit of a blurite. Well, for the last few years he's been seen as a very strong supporter of the Prime Minister. Uh, Lord Mandelson, a key figure. We had a statement from his spokesman uh, making clear uh, that he would be uh, staying in the government so it looked like uh, this was fizzling out I mean it's interesting there was Jeff Hoon saying no I haven't been speaking uh, to, to members of the cabinet but let's just sort of analyse and work out what he wasn't doing and what he was doing what he was not doing was what he said he wanted to do which is to have a ballot of the parliamentary Labour Party that's not what this letter was about what the letter was about was nudging members of the cabinet because Jeff Hoon a long-serving member of the cabinet Pat Hewitt a long-serving member of the cabinet they know that the only way that you can get rid of a sitting prime minister except in the most exceptional circumstances is if the cabinet say it's time to you for you to go the the obvious scenario the obvious parallel is the events of November 1990 when Margaret Thatcher just won the leadership the first uh, ballot of the conservative leadership didn't quite get enough to prevent a second ballot and when she called in the cabinet to say what do you think they said well of course Margaret will support you but we think you're finished she had to go so Jeff Foon and Pat Hewitt this was about nudging the cabinet to move against Brown and by tea time it looked like they had not succeeded
0: well, Do we read anything into the fact that it, we had a statement from Lord Mandelson and we didn't actually see him in person uh, by tea time or indeed some of the other big hitters in the cabinet?
1: Yes, well we all know that uh, Peter Mandelson is pretty exasperated uh, with Gordon Brown. He was very disappointed with the pre-budget report. He thought he, he thought it should have been much more honest about setting out the public spending cuts that will have to be made from next year so he's clearly clearly disappointed but in a sense his head is ruling him his heart says yes gordon brown is really not up to it and shouldn't we in an ideal world move on to a new leader but his head is telling him it's five to midnight we are moments away from a general election and for the Labour Party to have an internal contest just before we go into a general election would look like internal navel gazing probably a turn off for the electorate and would be a boon for the Tories.
0: Well the Tories will be delighted won't they?
1: Yes I mean the Conservatives interestingly uh, if Gordon Brown uh, were to resign you could argue that that means that uh, a wounded Prime Minister would go and that wouldn't be great for the Conservatives. But their thinking uh, yesterday, really, was that this is win-win on all levels.
0: Nicholas Watt in Westminster. Well, this isn't the first attempt to challenge Gordon Brown's leadership, so how does it compare with previous uprisings? Observer columnist Andrew
2: Rawnsley. This challenge compares with... Other challenges to Gordon Brown's leadership very well, in so much as all these challenges, going back to the first attempted uprising against him in the autumn of 2008, have been inept, disorganised, and with no apparently clear end game. And this is why, so far, they've all failed. I mean, we'll see how this one pans out, but as we're speaking now, it looks like it's going to go the same way as the other insurrections, and. Fizzle out. Uh, There are, I think, two reasons for that. One is those plotting the regicide have always been more incompetent, disorganised, failing to communicate with each other than the king they would topple. And a second reason is the Labour Party's rule book and how that interacts with the dynamics of the Labour Party. Because Gordon Brand supporters every time have been able to go back and say to those like Jeff Hoon and Patricia Hewitt, you know the rule book. The rule book doesn't say let's have a secret ballot, a confidence ballot. The rule book says you've got to get the signatures of seventy-one Labour MPs behind a declared explicit challenger to the leader. And then we'll see about having a leadership contest. That was true back last summer. It's true again now.
0: Wasn't the real purpose of this letter to Labour MPs not to have a ballot of uh, the Parliamentary Labour Party, but really just to flush out cabinet rebels?
2: It might have been, but in that case, I think it's if that is really the case, it's pretty incompetently done. I mean, all, all good QCs... Jeff Hoon was a lawyer and so was Patricia Hewitt. All good QCs should say say you should never ask a question to which you don't know the answer. So before they did this, they should have known the answer to the question... Will members of the Cabinet support it? How many other MPs will support it? And what about the timing of
0: this? Because Labour has been doing slightly better in the polls than it has been previously. Uh, Gordon Brown had a rather good Prime Minister questions ju- just as this uh, um, challenge was unfolding. Um, it, the timing of this is, is not helpful to Labour in any
2: way. No, and I'm not sure the timing was right from the point of view who want to those who want to remove Gordon Brown. I mean, in the sense, it's both too late and it's too soon. It's too late in this sense. Really, the time for the Labour Party to make up its mind, whether it wanted to be led by Gordon Brown or not, was when Tony Blair retired. I mean, I'm one of those who said at the time and still say now, there should have been a leadership contest. Gordon Brown might well have won that leadership contest, but he would have had a bit more legitimacy because he would have been elected rather than crowned as he was because there was no challenger so that was one time to do it another time might have been in uh, the summer of last year when let's remember Labour in those local and euro elections crashed to its worst election result since world war one but they still didn't want to do it then so it's too late in that sense it's too soon in this sense that were they to remove Gordon Brown when he didn't want to go to pull him out in early January as the snow is falling around us, we could get into the sort of crisis where there would have to be a February general election or a March, early March general election. I'm not sure the Labour Party would do terribly well in those circumstances. And so there's an argument if you're gonna do it and there's not much time left to do it, then um, they should be thinking about doing it a bit later so they didn't have to have a general election which might be snowbound that doesn't tend to be very good for governments.
0: Andrew Rawnsley, and there's full coverage today at guardian.co.uk slash politics. Also on The Guardian's website.
1: I'm Sarah Phillips from G2, The Guardian's daily features section. Online today, Charlie English, The Guardian's resident snow expert, gives a brief history of recent extreme cold weather. Sibyl Kapoor explains how to make perfect porridge to keep you warm. And novelist Camilla Shamzi writes about 150 years of Indian, Bangladeshi and Pakistani photography ahead of a new show at the Whitechapel Gallery. All this and more at guardian.co.uk forward slash g2.
0: As snow blankets Britain, one of the main challenges for local authorities is to keep us moving. Stephen Morris went to a gritting depot in Gloucestershire to see how the county council was looking after its key roads. It doesn't look very exciting, A pile of sandy coloured mineral piled up in a barn just off the M5 in Gloucestershire. But on this snowy day in this very hilly area, this little mountain of salt is pretty vital. I'm here with Jason Hum, an area highways manager, who knows everything there is to know about gritting a road.
3: Well, We're in one of our um, depots at uh, Stroudwater, so within the county, Um, stood within the the salt barn which is where we keep our um, uh, large stockpiles of salt. Um, and obviously next to us is is um, probably about a half full barn, um, and that's full of, of rock salt. We call it. So it's basically a, a salt-based product, um, but it's got a little bit of sort of sort of um, grit in there as well. So it gives it a bit of body. So
0: you've got a decent supply in Gloucestershire
3: still. We've got a reasonable supply. Yeah, obviously we're keeping our eye on the weather forecast, and we're, we're being sensible and cautious about it. Really, um, the weather is going to be quite harsh over the over the next few days. That's for sure. So we're trying to make an estimate of what we're going to use, and we're also trying to work with our supply companies um, to. To make sure that um, they give us a good idea on what they're going to supply.
0: We retreat from the cold into Jason's office, big map of the county on the wall as you'd expect and his phone as you'd expect as well, is ringing off the hook.
3: We've got over 5,000 kilometres of network which is, which is quite a lot and what we aim to do is um, we aim to keep uh, our, our key routes as we call them. Um, open and they're the ones that we really concentrate on. And that's about a third of the network, so so that's around um, around sort of sort of 1,700, 1,800 kilometres that, that we will will salt every time it, it freezes. And obviously they're the key areas that we'll concentrate on in, in heavy snow conditions. That very similar to what we've had. Beyond that, we then have a secondary network um, which takes us up to, to probably about half of the the, the roads within the county. Um, so that gives us the ability to cover half of those 5,500 kilometres. In the other areas, there are smaller housing estate roads, some of our more rural, smaller lanes. They're the ones that obviously we're we're really uh, conscious of encouraging the drivers to take extra care on because they're the ones that obviously we can't get to in, in the severe conditions.
0: Tech geeks from around the world are convening in Las Vegas for the annual International Consumer Electronics Show. Silicon Valley's top brass are there with their latest gizmos, as is our technology correspondent, Bobby Johnson.
6: Here at the world's largest technology showcase, things officially opened with Microsoft's forceful chief executive, Steve Ballmer, giving a keynote speech. He took responsibility for that duty from Bill Gates a couple of years ago, and although he hit a few problems along the way, first of all with the power which got knocked out and left him half an hour behind schedule, Once he hit his stride, we saw a couple of interesting new things from the company. First of all, Slate PCs, which are these sort of touchscreen machines that you carry around. They're meant to be halfway between a complex mobile phone and a laptop PC. We also heard about Project Natal, the company's motion-sensitive gaming system, which was previewed at last year's E3 gaming show in Los Angeles. Now, the big thing here is that they say that's going to be available on sale by Christmas this year. Elsewhere, the hit of the show so far has been the AR drone from French company Parrot. That's an iPhone-controlled helicopter that's being touted as a toy, probably beyond the reaches of most children, but maybe out there for the executives and the big spenders. We've also been treated, if that's the right word, to a lot of 3D gadgetry, including television sets and cameras. The big electronics companies are really staking a lot on 3D. They see it as the next big evolution in the way we watch television. And that's a technology that's been on a steady curve in the past few years, moving on from digital imagery through high definition, and now they want to add an extra dimension to our viewing as well. Not everybody's in agreement with that. But the attendees we spoke to were still excited about plenty of the trends they expect to see during the rest of this week. If you're
4: talking to, to anyone here on, on, on the show, it's, it's 3D, that's the major thing. What I'm really interested in is because I think Samsung and Toshiba, they announced that they can make any 2D content into 3D uh, with the power of a processor. I think ebooks books or yeah, I don't know how you call it, e-readers... Uh, I think this is going to be interesting as well.
0: Computer, uh, netbook, that was really huge last year. I think this year we're going to have a like, smaller one. And I saw one last night from Lenovo. I love it. I wanted to leave. <laughs> I wanted to steal it. Bobby Johnson reporting. The National Portrait Gallery has unveiled a portrait it commissioned of Prince William and Prince Harry by Nicky Phillips and it shows the princes in military uniform but in a relaxed pose at Clarence House. Guardian's art critic Jonathan Jones was pleasantly surprised. It's got a kind of cool poise to it and yet when you when you actually
4: go close to it it, it, it's very well painted it's got some nice details just in in a traditional way but it's also got a lot of um art historical references, that's not why I like it that doesn't make a painting good, having art historical references, but they're, they're, they're worn rather lightly, used rather well and, and in a way that seems to sort of give it a kind of, give it a bit of meaning meaning beyond just being a picture of these, of these two princes, obviously the, the sort of the thing that really catches your eye in the picture is, that, is their uniforms, that, that they're in military uniform, William's wearing the order of the um, garter in you know, sort of blue sash can actually very archaic in the sense that those uniforms look like they could have been worn a century ago. You know, the, the, the garter dates from the Middle Ages, so not very contemporary. And yet, of course, we are at war. People are wearing uniform, people are dying in uniform. Harry has been in Afghanistan. There's a certain dignified sense of of, of this moment in it. And maybe something else too. Uh, you know, the, the history, of this, there's, there's a nice sense of art history in it. This echoes of Manet too, Velasquez. That sounds like I'm just talking about the greatest painting in the world. I'm not. But, but as um, a
0: royal portrait, it really
4: as a royal portrait, it's above the you know above the run of the mill. I mean, I you know I've seen some absolutely repellent royal portraits. Uh, uh, you know, in Ralph Harris, probably Nader, I suppose. But you know, I mean, I mean, it's a, it's not an art in which I would expect any kind of originality or interest at all. But the funny thing is I I thought, yeah, the National Portrait Gallery has to commission royal portraits. Well, there's something
0: quite poised and interesting about this one. It's stylish. Jonathan Jones, Phil Maynard and Ian Chambers, and in Las Vegas, Scott Corley, with the producers of today's edition of Guardian Daily, and my name's John Dennis. Thanks for listening.